Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back. This is the final 2018 episode of MedTech Talk number 121. So thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to bring you this week's conversation with Ann Morrissey. Ann is the CEO of Alidia Health. Alidia is a small startup that's uh, raised money recently to test its device to stop postpartum hemorrhage. So it's an important problem that MedTech is stepping up to solve. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Ann. She uh, she gets into the financing, some of the interesting investors in the deal, but also talks about her career and uh, some of the uh, the great help she's received through the years uh, from mentors and also her uh, sort of unique path into into MedTech. So it's great to talk with Anne about all those things. I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Before I let you go, I wanted to uh, tell you that we're going to be taking a couple of weeks off at Healthogy. Healthogy is the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and, of course, the MedTech Conference. We'll be planning to drop you drop our next MedTech Talk podcast on the week of January 14th. So it'll be the week after J.P. Morgan. So look for that to come around uh, January 17th or so. Speaking of J.P. Morgan, uh, I think I'll be there. So if you want to uh, get together, I'd love to, to chat. Reach out to me. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. Or you can email me directly, tom at healthogy.com. Finally, before I let you go, uh, we are making great progress with the MedTech Conference. Listen to this podcast. Uh, in the middle, I'll have uh, some information for you about, uh, about the program and also some potential savings for you. So please enjoy this conversation with Ann Morrissey of Lydia Health. And Morrissey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be speaking with you. I want to hear all about Alidia. It's an interesting company, uh, interesting origins, and uh, I, I think you've got a unique approach. But as always, let's find out a bit about you and our, our guests. I'd like to find out ultimately how you found your way into MedTech. For my reading of my intensive research on LinkedIn, it looks like you started at Kimberly Clark. Did you go into Kimberly Clark knowing you were going in this direction? Yeah. So I, that's actually where I started at MedTech was it. Kimberly Clark and their professional healthcare division. And mm -hmm. it was not completely by design that I ended up in, in healthcare. When they offered me a job, it was the best package. And I had just totaled my car and they also offered me a company car. The job at the PR firm took a very distant second to Kimberly Clark. And that is actually how I found my way in to MedTech and said yes to MedTech. I think what kept me in MedTech was um, during the training that Kimberly Clark does, which all big companies do. I spent a lot of time in the operating room and hospitals. And it was also at a time that we learned to actually scrub into cases. And I scrubbed into my first case and I was hooked. So um, that's where I got my start. You're the second person, I think, in the last month uh, who's mentioned that the, the getting in the operating room and seeing it happen was really what, what uh, got them hooked onto MedTech. So, so there's like this whole kind of fate thing. You know, if you hadn't totaled your car, you might not be CEO of a MedTech company today. Right. I'm definitely a believer at this stage of my career that I think sometimes opportunities present themselves and they don't always follow. And certainly my career has not followed a linear path by any stretch of the imagination, but it's been interesting. And I think that there's the continuity throughout my career really has been about making a difference. And so I've hopped into a few other areas. I worked at a nonprofit. I also worked in consumer products for a short period of time, but um, I would consider med tech and medical device my home base. 
for sure. Well, let's follow your, your twists and turns in, in, in med tech. After Kimberly Clark, uh, you stayed with a big company. What was your path? How did you ultimately find yourself in the startup? Right. So I started out in sales. So I, so I carried a bag and I started out selling drapes and gowns to operating rooms, which was not very glamorous, but wow, <laughs> it was yeah. a great way to get exposed. And you know, it was a commodity product. So it was a pretty tough road to go, but it was uh, a great exposure. And what I very quickly realized was that I liked med tech. I liked the industry, but I really wanted to work for a smaller company. I wanted to be more surgically focused. And I pretty quickly realized I also wanted to be on the inside and not just um, taking what strategy people had laid out and going out and just saying the pitch. I wanted to be part of figuring out what was the right pitch and what market should we be in and what do the products look like. I did you know, spend time. I was in sales for a couple other companies before I actually went to my first marketing role, which was at actually a company here in the Bay Area, which was General Surgical Innovations. They were working in general surgery, cardiovascular, and uh, plastic and reconstructive surgery at that time. And so I actually joined them as a as a product manager and very quickly, you know, loved that and took on, I started out in their plastic and reconstructive group and then ultimately kind of took over all the product lines there, which was, you know, a really fun opportunity for me. It was a fairly young company. I joined right before the IPO. So I got to go through that experience and I guess it was 1997. There were a lot of IPOs. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got from, you know, from the, from the outside into the inside of, uh, of MedTech. And in 98, I think it was, you uh, were a co-founder in uh, Vivant. How, how did you come upon that situation? It's a very small, it's a very small industry. Um, it was then, and I, it still is today in, in many regards. Um, I actually, uh, this is actually pretty funny. So I was at GSI and GSI had moved from Palo Alto to Cupertino and uh, the, the commute was brutal. I lived in the city and uh, I was like, you know, I don't know if I can continue to do this, this commute. It's kind of crazy. And so I'd been talking with, you know, executive team about kind of my next step. And one day the CEO walked into my office with a post-it note that said on the, on the post-it note, it said, breast opportunity. <laughs> And, and that's all it said. And he said, come see me. <laughs> I don't think he'd bring you that note today. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I think sexual harassment training might have taken care of that. I don't know. Anyway, um, I had worked with uh, breast reconstruction, so I, I didn't take offense. But anyway, so I walked into his office and he said, hey. He said, you know, I got a call from, you know, Three Arch Partners who, you know, at you know, that time were, you know, one of the, the leading venture capitalists in, in medical device. And he said, you know, one of the partners is looking for somebody to help them co-found this company working on some minimally invasive lumpectomy technology. You know, is it something you'd be interested in pursuing? They'd really like to talk to you. It's like, yes. <laughs> wow. Um, so your boss goes and, and basically gives you a lead to another job? Yeah, I mean, I think he knew I was possibly uh, not going to stay. And so it, it kind of worked out serendipitously. And so Mark and I had a meeting or two and the CEO, who was Greg Cachero at the time, said he spent, you know, part of his Sunday on the phone with Mark, you know, as he did his due diligence on me. And then, um, you know, they came, he came back and he said, yeah, we'd like you, we'd like you to do this with us. And so I did. It was a little, it's very different than founding a company, which I've also done. Um, I was a hired founder. So <laughs> in the sense that, you know, I was there, I was the business person. I had a couple of engineers that I was working with. Our goal was to do something in minimally invasive lumpectomy. So women's health care was something that I've always, always loved. Um, but we, we couldn't get anything off the bench. <laughs> we kept trying and trying and, and breast tissue is really, really challenging to work with. And, you know, we tried and we tried and we 
ended up, you know, one of the things I learned from that opportunity is that once once an investor is into a space, they, they don't want to leave. So Mark basically said, go find something for us to buy in this space. And so I did. And we ended up acquiring a technology and the company took a bright right turn to a palliative therapy for liver cancer, at which time, you know, I tried to give it a go. And they actually that acquisition came with a with a CEO as well. And so you know, I tried to kind of work with that. And then I decided, you know, I said, this isn't really what I signed up for. That was when I left Vivant. Um, I will say that ultimately, actually, one of the technologies that we did work on with the R&D team that was used for breast cancer, which is, I think, still to this day, probably the leading breast marking technology for biopsies was something that we did sell to J&J. So I'm proud of that piece. And then we did get something started that ultimately, you know, the technology that was acquired that we identified and acquired was sold to Tyco. So it wasn't ultimately, it was a great exit, but not at all where we started in women's health. I remember Mark, first of all, because he's also partial owner of uh, my Boston Celtics. So yeah. (laughs) Uh, But also I remember him in 3Arch very well. Uh, now, as you're a CEO of a company, I just want to harp back to sort of the origins of, of this story. I just think it was incredibly generous for someone that you're working for to come and say, hey, this sounds like a really exciting opportunity. You should talk to someone about it. That's that's really a, a kind thing to do. Is that something you, you as a CEO, do you see, your, is that a, a, sort of a lesson that you would take away from and perhaps do the same for someone working for you? I mean, I will say, you know, it was, it was great to share. I mean, he's still in the industry and I actually early on in my career, you know, one of the, actually the product line that I had at GSI, maybe this background will illuminate it a little bit why he did that was that product line that I had, um, they built, you know, a team around of which I was kind of the lead of. And I went to them at the executive team kind of not that long after I got there. And I was like, this is, this is not a business. This doesn't make any sense. Basically, you know, talked myself out of a job (laughs) Um, (laughs) and said, you know, we should, we need to partner this with somebody. We need to find a partner for this. We should not be building a sales team around this or much of a marketing effort. Great product, but doesn't belong, doesn't belong here. And, you know, I think what I learned from that is to always be, be true to what the what is actually happening and what the true vision of a company is to be, how it's going to be successful. And in seeing where the problem was and calling it actually turned into a bigger opportunity for me when they said, that's great. I think we should do that. So I got to go and negotiate a deal with Genzyme, a division of theirs that had a surgical line, which was a great opportunity for me at that point in my career. And then also I was then given kind of the rest of the product lines of the company to say, uh, what should we do? And so I got this opportunity to have a much broader responsibility at that point. And I, and, and obviously I think it was because I'd done a great job and I'd also identified something that I didn't think should, they should be spending any more money on. So in that, and I think in that, in that light, I think, you know, Greg also knew that I was really passionate about women's healthcare. He also knew that I was really kind of struggling with whether or not I wanted to stay my job. It changed tremendously. I was commuting and he was like, here's a really great opportunity that I think you should explore. I mean, he actually came into my office one day too. And he said, Hey, you know, the company you just negotiated this deal with is thinking of actually spitting out the division that you sold the device to. So maybe you should talk about doing a, you know, a management buyout. I'm like, what's that? (laughs) So so he was presenting opportunity to me, which I think is, I don't know. I, I, I certainly valued it. I would certainly see that in my people. I think if I saw somebody who I felt, you know, they didn't have kind of what I thought they needed internally to grow and to really kind of do their best work. I would certainly, I, I certainly hope I can always have that kind of relationship with the, my, certainly my kind of leadership team. 
uh, I, I wouldn't be able to have that kind of relationship where I could help them help see that because it doesn't help me as a, you know, as a CEO of a company, if my people are not fully engaged in giving, you know, a hundred percent plus to what they're doing and they really care about it and they're passionate about it and passionate about making a difference. Um, and I think, you know, for example, like the team that I have here, I have some really amazing, incredible people who've come here because we have this amazing, simple product that's going to make such a huge difference. And I think they see an opportunity to do some really, you know, something different and to make a huge difference. But if I notice that somebody's not super engaged or I see something that might actually help them fulfill their long-term career, I feel like those things, what comes around goes around and it's a small industry. That's a great, great philosophy. I will now take a quick break to uh, give you an update on the MedTech Conference. I've been working with our co-chairs, Kirk Nielsen of Versant and Leslie Trigg of Outset, and uh, they're cranking, man. We've got our first keynote confirmed. We have a, a great panel of, uh, of senior MedTech executives, uh, including a couple of folks I did not think we'd be able to get. So excited about that potential. We'll start releasing names in January. We'll put up a full agenda in January. But I did want to uh, let you know that uh, we're going to, as a thank you for MedTech Talk listeners, you folks have been great. You've really supported the podcast. So I'd like to offer you a MedTech code, a MedTech Talk code. If you register now for the MedTech Conference, register before the end of January, you'll see if you go to medtechconference.com that we're offering a discounted rate. Register for the end of January before that, that special rate expires and use the MedTech Talk code and we'll knock a couple hundred dollars off of that price. So this is a, a great opportunity for you to get into MedTech, the MedTech Conference for almost half the price. We really would love to bring some new folks into the conversation. We'd love to have some new folks in the room. So this is our, our thank you to you for your support of the podcast. So again, go to medtechconference.com, use the MedTech Talk code. We'll knock a couple hundred dollars off the price. And uh, we look forward to seeing you there on May 29th and May 30th. I'll give you a little more information about the conference at the end of this podcast. Now let's get back into this conversation with Ann Morrissey. Right. Well, this is a great segue now to, to get into work, what you're working on today. Can we? How did you find your way to what is now called Elidia? I believe when you first joined, it was uh, Inpress. But what? Uh, how did your 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 path lead you here? It's a great question. Uh, it's again kind of a little circuitous. I started a consumer products company, and I had gone to Tom Fogarty, who had been at, you know, at GSI, he was on the board at Vivant and had been somebody, you know, I've kept in touch with throughout my career. I consider him to be a mentor. And I was in his office one day and we were talking about women's healthcare. And I said, I really miss women's healthcare. And he said, you know, there's somebody that you need to meet. And that he introduced me to, to Jesse Becker, who was the founder of Impress Now Olivia. Um, and that was about four years ago. So that's how I initially got connected with the company. Tell us a bit about uh, what Elidia does. Yes, we have a product which is for postpartum hemorrhage. And postpartum hemorrhage is the number one cause of maternal mortality in the world. Uh, here in the United States, uh, we don't have quite the mortality that they have in the developing world, but we have a very high incidence of blood transfusion and surgery, which leads to some pretty significant morbidities in this country. And what really attracted me to it was, you know, I'm going to go mention the post-it note again to me. The device is just, it's, it's really simple and it's really obvious the way that it works with the human body. The technology was 
developed at Cal Poly. So the device was, even to me as a non-clinician, it was very intuitive how it would work with the human body. So very, very simple. The application of it for, for postpartum hemorrhage to me, presented this opportunity of being able to develop a product that was going to solve a really big problem here at home and also saw a global problem that's killing women. I mean, there's, you know, if you add up the number of women that die every single day, it's about a jet full of women every day that are dying from preventable deaths that our device can address. So that's a really cool piece of it. And I think the other part that really enamored me you know, with the technology and with the company is Jesse was... I think when I met her was 24 years old. She had identified this. Uh, she was not the engineer who developed it, but she had seen it at Cal Poly and was incredibly passionate about ensuring that it actually got to the most needy women in the world, the most needy mothers in the world. And um, I really, I loved her vision. And I, you know, we, to, to this day, that is the core of our mission is to ensure that the technology gets to the developing world. And I think, you know, they had hit a stage of the company where, you know, medical device isn't like tech where, you know, you can be rather inexperienced and kind of figure it out as you go because they're writing the rules as they go. Uh, this is a regulated industry. And so having, you know, somebody who had expertise and contacts and network and the ability to raise funding or significant funding um, is, is when I came in. But we still share that kind of that long-term big vision and then also the short-term need to fulfill the I guess the need here in the United States to mm -hmm. to address the morbidity that's happening here. So talk a bit about the the device itself. It's a single use uh, silicone device that is inserted either uh, transvaginally or through a laparotomy after. So when a baby is born, first the baby comes mm -hmm. out, <laughs> either C-section or vaginally, um, and then the placenta comes out. I had three kids, and some I I have actually learned a lot about birth that I didn't know. <laughs> Maybe I wish I didn't know. <laughs> Um, I'm glad I've already had my kids. <laughs> um, but but what happens after the placenta comes out is is worldwide women are given um, uterotonics, which are drugs that stimulate contraction of the uterus. And the oh. reason for that is to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. So there's already preventative measure in place. And then, you know, what exists currently in the toolkit are a lot more drugs. Um, so they just continue. If a woman continues to bleed, they'll continue to add different drugs to the uh, kind of to the mix in the hopes that one of them will be received by the body and the body will actually start to contract the uterus, which that in and of itself is what stops the majority of bleeding. So the, our device actually goes in and works, um, basically does what the drugs are designed to do, which is it contracts the uterus. So it goes inside the uterus. It's very, imagine like a, a baby pacifier. It's very soft silicone. So it's inside the uterus and has holes on it on the inside and it is attached to wall vacuum. It's a very low level of vacuum. And it actually, within a minute or so, it will stop the bleeding of the, the hemorrhage. So um, as opposed to drugs, it might take a while. It stops the bleeding. And then it allows the body to rest. And then those drugs will either kick in or the mom's body will kick in and actually start to do that contraction itself after an hour or so. So it's really just working. I mean, the, the engineers who came up with it asked the right question, which is what actually happens when there's a postpartum hemorrhage. And they said, well, the uterus fails to contract. And so they said, well, let's contract the uterus. <laughs> and, and that's the device. It's really quite, quite simple. And, you know, and the other important thing, obviously, in this marketplace is, is the intellectual property. So we have really strong IP around, um, around this very simple technology, which is, which makes it um, something that allows us to raise money and, and to have 
asset value within the company as well. So is this used in, in conjunction with the drugs always, or, or is this a potential replacement for the drugs? Right now, we are focused on treating postpartum hemorrhage. We're running a clinical trial to show that it can treat postpartum hemorrhage after failure of the drugs. Ultimately, based on what we're hearing from the physicians that we work with is that they see long-term that this will actually move into that space where the drugs exist. Because it's hard to set the stage completely, but imagine you know, you're in, an, in a situation where a woman is continuing to bleed and that every 15 minutes we're like, well, let's try drug X. Okay, it's not working. Let's try drug Y. And you know, women will spike fevers, there's other complications, there's contraindications. It's very traumatic, right? And so our device offers the possibility just to get rid of all of that. So doctors will use it earlier. Um, definitely, they want to use it earlier. And that's our, our long term vision is that anytime somebody starts to bleed, and they can't control it quickly, that they would use our device, they deploy our device. And one of the analogies that people like to think about when they think about our device in obstetrics is if you go back to the 70s and you think about, you know, cardiovascular, everything was a drug regimen. And then all of a sudden, uh, devices came in, and you could do angioplasty, and there were stents, and there were all sorts of other ways that you could actually treat cardiovascular disease that didn't exist before. That's exactly what's happening here, which is what they have right now is a drug regimen, and then they have surgery. And now there were introducing a device that allows them to think completely, put together a completely new paradigm of how they approach a patient after, after delivery without having to go to surgery. Interesting. What is the, the regulatory track that you're on? And, and, and talk a bit about the clinical trials that you're working on. So it's a 510k with clinicals. So we're, it's 107 patients. We're doing the trial here in the United States. And the goal is to show equivalence to to a device called the uterine balloon tamponade. So there's one other device that's on the market that works by, it's, it's a balloon tamponade. So it's essentially a balloon on a stick. If you imagine the stick goes in and then they blow up the balloon inside the uterus, which provides tamponade. Um, so the predicate device piece comes in and that they're both considered tamponade. One is via vacuum. So it's collapse ours and the other is expansion. Um, and Basically, what we, we need to show on our trial is that we don't go on to blood transfusion. We don't go on to surgery. Um, we don't, they don't have to do any subsequent procedure to control the blood loss. So that's the, that's the goal of the trial. Remind me, how many, how many patients in the trial? It's uh, 107. And are you, are, the, are you fully enrolled? Where are you with that trial? <laughs> I wish we were fully enrolled. Um, it's, it, it's a tough trial. So we're, um, we have enrolled five patients so far. And um, here in the U.S., so we have, we're opening up at 12 centers. We've opened up five of our centers. So we're working at Columbia, Rutgers, um, University of Utah, University of Texas. So we've got sites across, across the country that we are opened at and in the process of opening. And as you can imagine, hemorrhage is not something that is highly predictive. So, for example, 75% of women have a risk factor. 75% of moms have a risk factor, but they're not highly predictive. Uh, incidence of PPH in this country is 10%, but because of the way our trial is structured, we only can actually, because they have to have failed drug drug therapy um, in order to be enrolled in our trial, uh, it's, it's, a, it's definitely challenging. So it, we anticipate that it will take us 12 to 18 months to actually complete enrollment of our trial. That's interesting. It hadn't occurred to me how difficult that would be, but once you started talking through it, certainly. Um, 
So do you just, do you get like a blanket? Do you get all, like every patient who goes in to deliver a baby, do they sign the waiver that if this, if this happens, you may use this device? Because you're obviously not going to go with them when they're suffering from the hemorrhage. Right, right, right. Yes. So our, our goal, the way, our, the way our protocol is written, our goal with each of our sites is to approach every woman as they come into, the, um, into labor and delivery, as they're admitted to the hospital they are approached to participate in this um, and sometimes they're approached about other research projects as well. Um, but so for example, we have one site um, in Salt Lake city and they are so far our best uh, consenters and their research team has attributed that to kind of a cultural um, attitude in the Salt Lake city area that is very um, community-based that they are, you know, if it's not me, it might be my sister. If it's not me, it might be my cousin. Um, that's that's having this situation, and so they actually have a much higher rate of consent than um, than some other areas. So, for example, you know, in a more affluent area, you might find that people are like, you know, let me know when it works, and then you can try it on me. Um, you know, I, I think so. It's a that is one of our biggest challenges. Um, is you know, it's kind of like the stars aligning. The patient has to be consented, and then there has to be a doctor and a research nurse available to actually do the procedure if a hemorrhage occurs that falls within our inclusion-exclusion criteria. So it's challenging. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's such a, a high-anxiety time anyway. I mean, just any young couple go in and they have a child, it's just like you don't want to sign another document. We have one physician who's done the most cases. I call her our super user. She's a, a chief resident, and she actually has been incredible in just in the feedback that we've gotten from her. I mean, one day we, you know, we got a call from her, like, we just saved this woman's life. It was incredible how quickly it worked, how amazing it was. You know, we've had patient feedback from one of her patients. Um, that, you know, one of the differences between, say, our device or, you know, if a woman ends up with a transfusion, another device or surgery, they, you know, there's a lot of downstream uh, potential morbidity from that, whereas ours right now we're showing that in an hour bleeding is controlled and that we haven't seen any recurrence of bleeding. And so a woman can get transferred. She can be with her baby. She can nurse her baby. If the baby ends up in the NICU, she can actually physically go to the NICU, whereas in other situations, they're, they're, they don't have that freedom after a hemorrhage situation. So it also provides better quality of life for the mom right away. And it also, you know, as far as attachment and being able to, you know, begin nursing a baby and, and actually even impacting the health of the baby are, are part of the downstream uh, benefit of our technology as well. It must be a great phone call to get. I'm sure it uh, makes your week to hear that. <laughs> they are. They are. I, it does. It does. Uh, we we sit around here waiting for cases because it's it is amazing. I mean, it's I think that's it, it's the glue of our team for sure. That's great. Well, let's finally talk about uh, the boring part, just uh, the the money part. No, uh, <laughs> the money part. Uh, oh, you mean the necessary? The part. necessary, yeah. <laughs> that, that 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 cash thing you need to keep going. So, talk a bit about a couple of things. You talk about your your financial backers. You've got some interesting investors. And also about uh, where you are with the company. Looking at your your team, it seems like you've brought a lot of people on this year. Like you're really kind of starting to sprint. So uh, where are you with financing, and and, uh, and uh, how has it led to ramping up at the company? Right. So we just uh, we just closed our Series B. Um, so we've raised um, ten million in this round, and the the round is to finance the clinical trial through five ten k clearance. 
I'll first talk about the financing and then I'll talk about how it impacts, you know, the thought about team and building the team. But I believe that having the right investors can can make the journey smooth and can really expedite um, everybody kind of to their to the goal, which I I do believe very deeply that we have the perfect lead investor. So Global Health Investment Fund um, is our lead investor for this round. They came in um, with the majority of the money. And they're an LP for, or their LPs consist of JP Morgan, Gates Foundation, among others. And they have a dual channel, uh, I guess, uh, bottom line. And the way they, they look at investments is they look first, much like a venture capitalist, they're looking at having um, a multiple return on their investments. But they only invest, um, unlike a venture capitalist, they only invest in something that also has the ability to have a significant impact on a global developing world health issue, of which maternal mortality is uh, is you know at the top of many lists, and so they may they, and and for us as a company, those are our two goals. Our goals are to be successful here, you know, first in the United States, you know, as our first developing world market, um, and to have you know a great uh, run of of revenue and market adoption. Um, but we also want to ensure that technology gets to the developing world. So I feel that we are perfectly aligned with. Uh, our lead investor, the board is on board, <laughs> um, which I think will make the journey. Um, you know, I think we're, it's a very collaborative group, um, you know, our board of directors, and we're all heading in the same direction. And it really allows us to, to do something that a lot of companies, you know, choose not to do or don't do. I personally think that, you know, our, all of the work that we're doing to think about the developing world is ultimately going to make us a stronger competitor in all the developed markets as well. I think it makes our uh, R&D stronger, our patent portfolio stronger than, than we would if we were just thinking about this market here um, alone. We have, to, we have to get to the bottom. We have to race to the bottom as quickly as possible, and I think it just sets us up well for, uh, for the future. Um, I think the other piece that you asked about was a team. And, yeah, so I, um, so I came in, the, the founders actually hired me as a CEO. So that's not typical. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, I, you know, the first year I really was of the mindset and, and the hope that maybe Jesse with some mentoring could potentially um, continue to lead the company. Um, and it became really clear that in this space, that just wasn't going to happen. Um, that, you know, my experience and maybe my gray hair, <laughs> Uh, was was part of the uh, part of the the mix, but it it really became clear that we needed uh, somebody, you know, that I did need to be at the helm, and so I immediately started bringing in um, regulatory folks. So Cindy Demicus has been, you know, just a tremendous asset to us, um, and then I started building out the clinical trial team, and Catherine has been an incredible. Uh, clinical operations leader and has has grown in that role here as well and built a, a team around that. So that was our initial focus because a clinical trial is is everything. Um, and then with this financing, I had already identified a a lead marketing person. So Colby joined the team, and then I also was able to find a fantastic R and D leader, um, Andy. And as we close the financing, the two of them um, have joined us as well. So we have I. I do feel now we have the uh, we have a rock star team of people who are really engaged and really passionate about the work that we're doing, which is, I think, the best thing that money can buy. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> 
So. Well, final question. What do you, uh, what does Olydia become in three to five years? Is this a, a one product company or do you see yourself uh, building a, perhaps expanding into other uh, women's health or, 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 um, or um, maternity sort of uh, products? What, what do you see happening? Right. I think anything is possible. I will say that. I think anything is possible. Uh, I do think that there is, there are a lot of natural homes for the technology that we're developing. And there's a lot of interest in what we're doing for much larger companies that have, you know, sales infrastructure that, um, that are very interested. So I think it could be, it could go either way. We certainly have, I think the financial projections that we have could certainly, we could support our own growth and our own team, um, for, for a long time. So I think it gives us the autonomy to make, you know, kind of the best decisions as we cross those bridges in the future. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for sharing your story and for sharing Olivia's story today. Great. Well, thank you, Tom, for your time. It's nice to meet you. And that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Before I let you go, I promised you a little more news or a little more information about the MedTech conference. We're doing things a little differently this year. We're going to open the conference actually the night before the main event. So the night before, we'll, we're going to start. We uh, plan to have some workshops with uh, some of our great partners. We hopefully will uh, cover some important topics to you. And then we will be holding a massive uh, reception, a networking opportunity for you to come make your connections, reconnect with old colleagues and old friends the night before the start of the conference. So when you hit the floor of the conference the next day, you're ready to go, ready to learn, ready to make those new connections. So go to medtechconference.com. We're going to be putting up an agenda in January for you to review, but, uh, but I think you really will want to be part of this experience. So uh, as a MedTech Talk podcast listener, once again, we'll create the MedTech Talk code and you'll be able to save $200 off the current discounted rate. So you're actually going to get into the event for half the price. So it's uh, nearly half the price. So it's a great opportunity for you. If you're someone who listens to the podcast but haven't attended the conference yet, please take advantage of this opportunity. The code and the discounted rate will expire in late January, at the end of January. So please don't wait. That's a wrap. Once again, we'll be uh, taking a little time off the next couple of weeks. Our next podcast will drop in mid-January. On behalf of my colleagues at Healthogy, I really wish you a happy holiday season and a prosperous start of 2019. We're very grateful for your support, and we we're really looking forward to bringing you a lot of great content in 2019.